Welcome to the Soil Solutions Podcast. I am your host, Jessica Nadd, and this podcast is being produced in partnership with High Plains Journal and Great Plains Regeneration. With me today is Zach Stuckey. Welcome, Zach. Hi, Jess. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. You know, with High Plains Journal and the publisher, it really is my mission as a son and grandson to grow or just here in the heart of Kansas that we make sure soil health and our content is always practical and real. And no matter what cropping system you're in, that it impacts your bottom line immediately. Excellent. Healthy soil equals healthy people, planets and animals. And we're excited to be here. Welcome back to the Soil Solutions Podcast. It is my pleasure to welcome Nicole Masters. Nicole is an agroecologist, educator, and systems thinker with nearly 20 years extensive practical and theoretical experience in regenerative land practices. She's been communicating these messages through Austral Asia for over two decades and recently in North America beginning in 2013. She is helping to inspire and guide producers into new and innovative ways to produce food. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Glad to have you on. Thanks for having me, Jessica. Great to be here. Excellent. Okay. So in your bio, I had the word Australasia and I actually mispronounced it earlier and said Australia. So give me a little context about your geography. Uh, So Australasia means the Pacific Islands, New Zealand and Australia. So it's one term that we use. It's kind of like saying North America when you mean America and Canada. Got it. So you've you've really been able to work in a lot of different parts in the world. So talk to me a little bit about your work as an agroecologist and what can our listeners, you know, how can we help educate them to learn a little bit more about what you do? Yeah. So as an agroecologist, I imagine most people know what an ecologist is. You know, we're looking for linkages in natural worlds, um, how systems work in together and interrelate. And then agro means agriculture, not that I'm angry about ecology, but that (laughs) it's how do we apply ecological principles when we're thinking about agricultural production. Uh, Yeah. And it's, I think, one of the most rapidly growing fields in agriculture right now. Yeah, we've definitely heard about that. Um, We talked to Jerry Hatfield, who is retired USDA ARS here recently. And I think he helped develop this whole concept of agroecology. I think our listeners are really um, in tuned with agronomy. So what you do is also seeped very heavily in agronomy work. Yeah, so there's components of chemistry, of physics, of microbiology, um, and really just looking at how do all of these systems interplay in terms of how does this affect the water cycle? How does this affect nitrogen and phosphorus? Um, how does this affect um, growth and, and yield potential as well as building resilience? And I think that really is the number one factor that's facing producers today is how do we build more resilient systems so that we can continue to grow with whatever nature throws at us? Yeah, we see a lot of that. So especially here in the high plains, um, we do struggle with dry conditions. We do struggle with um, declining um, aquifers, especially out in Western Kansas, Southwestern Kansas. So what are some ways that our practical approaches for producers to be able to build resilience? 
Um, oh, just overall as a concept, like where do you start when you're working with a producer about kind of that first nugget into soil mm-hmm. health? It's always dependent because I think everybody is an individual and people have different goals and concerns and things that they're working with. But the first step really is to dig a hole um, and really get familiar with the most valuable resource that any farm or ranch has, which is your soil. So starting to appreciate and value, this is the difference between profitability and total uh, Armageddon, basically, is what we're seeing. So we're finding systems now that are totally water repellent. We're finding systems that are ringing the dinner bell for insect pressures. We're finding systems that um, those entire cycles, if that's water, nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, all of those cycles have collapsed. So we have a choice. We can continue to be on the treadmill with more and more inputs of which the costs are increasingly going up. Or we can start to go, how do these cycles work in nature and how can I restore those cycles? So digging a hole is that first place is look at, you know, do I have a whole lot of compaction? Do I have surface crusting? Do I have that beautiful chocolate cake aggregation in my soil? Or do I have just these flat plates? And what we see in a lot of crops and rangeland out here are just these flat plates. There's no there's no structure in there at all. And who builds that structure is microbiology. And Although there are packaged products, you're not going to build, you're not going to buy a whole lot of microbes in a bag. It is how to support microbiology so that they build that structure. And now we have a system that works. Yeah, I, I love what you said there, digging a hole. In fact, I think we just found the podcast title here, digging a hole. <laughs> Go, you know, going down the rabbit yep. hole with Nicole Masters. Yep. So um, you know, you talked about having a system that repels water. That's very significant when we look at um, our natural resources and, and you need water and you need that rainfall to be utilized effectively. What does a system that repels water look like from your experience? And, and just for our, our listeners, you are working in the United States right now. Um, you're working with a series of, of producer networks and et cetera. So Let's talk a little bit more about that water repellent system. How, like, how did they get there? How did they build yeah. that operation? And, and you know, how do we unbuild that and bring in the biodiversity? So the reasons for hydrophobic conditions, so that literally means that your soil is afraid of water, um, can be uh, can be related to mineral nutrition. So there may be relationships with sodium or calcium. Um, but it's microbiology, really. They will, when they become super dry and you don't have that aggregate structure, these microbes will form a waxy coating on the outside of them. And then that creates a, a wax on that soil surface. So then water just, um, it might soak in in those top few, like I talk in millimeters, top, a couple of millimeters on the surface. And then you get the sun comes out and that little bit of water that you think you got evaporates. So a lot of people will go, hey, I just got an inch of rain. But when we have a look, most producers are probably only getting a tenth of that. So you might say, hey, I got 10 inches. And it's like, well, actually, in this whole season, you probably didn't even get that. You're just barely wetting the surface, which also means your water's not infiltrating down through all those beautiful crumbs. And then it's not adding to percolation, which is what refills the aquifers. So we're in this um, double vicious cycle really we're not we don't have systems that are absorbing water and then they're not restoring back to the aquifer so what we find is most agricultural systems that I've worked in are now in 
a flash flood drought environment, flash floods, droughts. Um, and so it's this is one of the critical issues is how do we interfere or interrupt in that cycle and start to have water that is absorbed? Yeah, I think we are seeing that. You know, we are seeing changing weather conditions. And I know producers are having to get used to flash floods and droughts and having those at the exact same time in the exact same season. You know, we saw that in Nebraska two summers ago where there were such extreme flooding conditions that it's a detriment to not only agriculture, but it's a detriment to communities. What are you seeing from your perspective on on communities? Well, it, it is a community issue because, you know, one thing I've seen is, is people think that soils freeze and freeze solid. And then that's why we get water moving across the, like an early spring, but uh, uh, an active microbiologically beautiful, diverse soil, that water actually is absorbed. There's no, there's no solid freeze. You don't get that frozen soil layer. You might get um, ice on top, but you won't get it below. So you might have a soil like that, but you've got a whole catchment above you, which in America you guys call these watersheds, and we need to change that language. But how do we catch so how do we catch that water that's coming from the neighbors? But if suddenly everyone around you has these water repellent soils, they're going to be dumping all that water on top of you. So it is something we need to look at collectively. And we're seeing some amazing projects in Australia now where the Australian government is actually investing in a full catchment restoration project um, after seeing how successful it's been in other areas. And when that project successful, which it will be, um, they plan to roll that out nationwide because we can't just be thinking of this whole system, if that's from um, what we're doing with climate and we are geoengineering our climate through our management, we need to be looking at this, you know, beyond our own fences. Yeah. And that's one thing, Great Plains Regeneration, one of our focuses of how um, we would like to fulfill our mission is this watershed regeneration. I get it now when you said, you know, we're calling it watersheds and it should be, you know, catching water. They should be water catchment, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's been a barrier to the adoption of more soil health practices is because we are just doing research in small plots. Does that happen across the world? Um, Because these small plot studies are, are what inform producers on best practices, and we need to be doing them on total watershed regeneration. Yeah. So tell me the differences you see. Part of that is it's an old model of research, you know, and you can't study natural systems with pot trials or splitting fields up and, and, you know, trying this little thing here and this little thing there because that's not how nature works. And uh, it's interesting because we're seeing science move in other areas so quickly, but yet in agricultural science, we're still dealing with 100-year-old paradigms in terms of how we do our research. And this is why we're seeing so much innovation coming from the ground up. It's the producers themselves that are demonstrating how this is possible. Um, And we see often scientists will come and have a look and and say, oh, well, these guys are an outlier and then just miss that information instead of, oh, this is where we should be really curious. You know, how is it we can restore um, water and resilience and have less frost? You know, frost damage is a biological Um, and nutritional aspect as well and seeing producers that don't have the same amount of frost damage anymore um, you know that that's only what you see when you start to harvest it's not something that someone can can do in a little plot and tell you that you're going to be frost resistant yeah and that's you know you talk a little bit you bring up 
a lot of these points in your book for the love of soil. I love that title, by the way, because talking to you, it is a love, like it's a deep, you know, um, it's a deep heartfelt mission that I think you're on. You mentioned producer-led trials, producer-led education. That's the core of how we really got started with Soul Help You. Um, it was a it was a way to bring producers together to learn from each other. And typically, outside of this whole COVID world, global pandemic that we've been living in, um, we host the event in January in Kansas. And you know, we might have two dozen speakers, and there'll be a lot of producer speakers that are willing to put their operation up in the forefront to just talk about what, what has worked for them and what hasn't worked for them. Um, there's a lot of transparency on return on investment um, and, and about just struggles that they've had in their soul health journey. So I really appreciate you bringing that up with farmer-led education. I just I think that's how we move the needle forward. And you've been a part of that, especially in the United States, um, helping producers learn from their own soil. Thank you. Yeah. And I think part of our focus has been on how do we how do we learn from each other? It's how I originally learned a lot of this was when we were farming. I, I mean, I farmed probably for half of or maybe a third of my life, but being a part of uh, what we call the biological barbecues. And we would get together every six weeks and go and look at each other's properties and we called it ruffling through the underpant drawer. It was like, what, what's the what's the worst thing perhaps we could find on a property and what's what's the best thing? And being totally open to that vulnerability in terms of take a look at what's not working very well here and let's brainstorm as a community in terms of what are some of the different actions, what are things that, that I could be doing, but also, hey, took a, take a look at this. It's working really, really well so that we weren't having to trial everything on one property. It was like we had a trial group that was 16 people that you try this and you try that and I'll try this and, and let's see what, what works well for us, especially when you're in a similar climate um, or, or soils or... Yeah, I mean, we were a pretty diverse group too. I mean, there were farmers like sheep and beef, and which we call farmers, not ranchers over there, and um, avocados and orchards. So there were people that were, you know, doing different things, but actually collectively soil was what we all had in common. Oh my gosh. So biological barbecues that we're also getting, we, we need to do this, Nicole. We need to, oh, this be so good. to have some biological barbecues. You've been to Kansas multiple times. Um, we dig a pit, we dug a pit at Gail Fuller's um, property just last year. Um, I just, I think this is great being transparent and being able to have that vulnerability about farming and ranching is what's really going to propel us into climate resiliency for the future and agricultural resiliency and being able to produce food at a high level that nourishes people. Um, and I think that we're bringing together all members of the community for this to be able to do that. So being in Kansas, um, you know, working over at Gail's property, what were some of the things that surprised you working with Kansas farmers? Was there any really great questions that popped up or, you know, anything that you found bizarre? <laughs> <laughs> what I'm finding and it's happening around the world is this rising awareness. Um, and it depends, you know, in Australia, you can find that, I can't remember when I first started teaching in Australia, but 
farmers there, ranchers there know things like mycorrhizae. Like mycorrhizae is something that just sort of rolls off their tongues, whereas coming here for the first time maybe eight years ago, people seemed less familiar with some of these really important microbes in the soil that are what build resilience. And what was interesting at Gail Fuller's event was just to see there is quite a depth of knowledge. There's people that have been doing things for a long time, like Gail. Um, yeah, and just to see, even though he's been on that property for a short amount of time, to see how quickly that landscape's starting to heal itself. You know, there's plants that I would specifically think of as healing plants that are what some people would think of as weeds that kind of like scabs over the surface of the ground because that, that ground is basically in a wound healing phase. Um, and to see how, how that landscape is repairing itself, it was really heartening. I think Ray Archuleta is the one that says that. I talk, about, <laughs> I, I, I talk about it in terms of a digestive system because, um, you know, we and relate it to the human body. So most people are kind of aware of what's happening in terms of their, you know, gut microbiome or thinking about how digestion might happen. Well, it's very similar in the soil, except that the digestion or the stomach is outside of the plant. So the plant has to outsource those services as such. And what we find is most soils either have um, constipation or they have diarrhea. So you go to New Zealand or Vermont or places like that, you're going to see diarrhea. Um, or they're basically comatose, like they've totally shut down. Or I talk about sleepy soils, which we see in areas right across the US where there's very little biological activity um, and that whole digestive system shuts down, you know. And, and so just like in our own guts, you know, we, we have, you know, more microbiology in and on us than what we have human cells and that they're there to, um, well, they actually direct the brain in a lot of ways. They... Uh, what provides secondary metabolites and vitamins for us to be healthy. They are what pre-digest our food and then provide that to us. Um, it is our immune system. It's what stops inflammation. They're now saying that 100% of immunological disorders, so anything to do with inflammation, relates to gut health, 100%. So that's things like arthritis or acne, different types of cancers, um, huge amounts now relate to, to the human gut microbiome. And we're seeing the same thing happening in soil microbiome studies is so much of plant health, performance, yield, all of that uh, defense against insects relates to that soil gut microbiome. So if we can restore that function, get microbiology working, then you're not going to have to run down and get yourself something to kill a grasshopper or um a cutworm. You're not going to need something to deal with sclerotinia or any kind of fungal diseases because you have that natural defense system now working in the soil. Um, and that's the exciting thing. Like we currently, oh, as of last year, as a company, as an educational company, we were working with organizations that covered 24 million acres, um, directly consulting, working with 240,000 cropping acres. And so this isn't some kind of pie in the sky utopian dream with unicorns farting like that's not what we're seeing in these systems it's we can restore health and we can restore resilience and we can restore profitability um and it's it's incredibly exciting which is why we're seeing more and more interest in this space i just that that gets me going i'm so excited to hear you say that because it is what you're doing is that's called scale 
We are regenerating soil. You are working on regenerative land practices at scale. So yeah, we're, we're out of, we're out of the, you know, 15 acre test plot situation. Um, so just to kind of like hone it back down for our producers, um, when, when we've got this soil that is hydrophobic and we've got this soil that's water repellent, I know that it's hard. My, my agroecologists, even my agronomists, they always hate when I ask this question because I say, you know, what are some things that producers can do? And I get corrected because it's not a prescription and no. there's not a one size all approach that fits. But let's just let's hone in on practices for a moment. What are some things that producers need to be learning about and implementing as far as practices, knowing that every system is different? Yeah, which is why possibly people react that way to you when you ask this question, because your practices are guided by your philosophy, your beliefs. So like probably half of my training has been more in the human behavioral side, the organizational learning, the systems thinking because it's that that needs to shift because any practice can actually be degenerative in the wrong hands. So it it's not so much about the practices, it's how do we implement those practices? So for instance, 51% of cover crops right now in America are terminated using glyphosate and we're about to see massive rollout of cover crops. Well, we're going to see a massive rollout of glyphosate and you think, that early uptake of cover crops were probably people that were more innovative that are probably not using as much glyphosate as the next wave of people that are going to come in and start planting cover crops. So I think we can see that potentially cover crops could actually work against what people's goals are in terms of diversity or, you know, providing insect pollinators, food, and it, it could actually work the opposite if we're not really looking at through the the lens of a philosophy of how do I work more in sync with nature? Um, how do I build more resilience? How do I, how am I building soil health for the long term instead of just a, a short term thinking? Like, you know, I'm going to put a cover crop in because I have compaction and it becomes some kind of knee-jerk reaction instead of let's be really proactive in our thinking. Let's ask questions about why, like why do I have this kind of test why do I have no resilience to dry conditions and then starting to take our actions from that question of why so I'll work with producers and we will ask this why question again and again and again until we dig down on why something might be happening and it might be just because the sales rep had a really good deal and he gave me a cool baseball hat and that's why we do that <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> so yeah it's um it's very much from that side instead of saying things like, yeah, you could do a cover crop or I have what we call the methadone program, which is how do we, how do we take some of the inputs out and substitute them with less harmful inputs while we're in that transition. So um, we use a lot of fulvic and humic acids in our programs. They're very concentrated carbons to feed microbiology and enable us to reduce you know, you can reduce your nitrogen by 30% just by adding in a carbon source with no change in yield and an improvement in soil health. So we kind of have some of those, like pull one out for putting something else in, it's going to cost you less um, and you're going to cut your nitrogen down. So everybody wins in that situation. Um, but it goes along with, let's start to ask those questions because the, the philosophy part of thinking about how do we work with landscapes isn't an overnight you don't just wake up one morning and go, yeah, 
I can totally read my landscape and see what all these things are indicating. You know, we, we're always learning. And so, yeah, I think that that process of, sorry, methadone's a little bit offensive, but um, yeah. <laughs> you know, how, how do we wean off the inputs without going through a withdrawal phase is, is why we called it methadone. Well, and I think you brought up a lot of key points there too. Do you think that helping a producer find their why within their operation of change definitely needs to be um, facilitated and supported almost before the how. Is that accurate? I mean, before we start implementing a practice, spending money, um, you know, on inputs, decrease. And I've also seen, uh, I've seen producers decrease their conventional systems too fast, which would be the methadone um, philosophy that you're kind of bringing up here. So finding the why, that's that's a, that's a pretty big deal right now, finding the why. It, it is a big deal. And we can do it in tandem while we're putting some of these practices in because the fact that even someone's turned up on my doorstep and wants to reduce inputs means that, that some of that why and the how is starting to happen for them. Um, just to be clear, I'm not consulting anymore. We stopped in <laughs> June last year. So okay. <laughs> um, we are in the middle of, of training a new cohort of coaches. So um, that first course will finish in April and then we are opening up for the next lot of consultants to come and train in July. So that would be open to anyone that you know has a depth of experience and is ready to teach others. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, grab all the links for um, everything that you're up to. We'll include your book on there, the coursework that you're offering. Um, can I? Let's just close out here, Nicole. You know, what's your greatest hope with the soil health movement right now? Um, I don't believe in hope because hope is a sometime, maybe out in the future. Like we're holding something, we're mortgaging our future. Is one way to think about hope. So I just actually live it as a reality that this is already happening all around me. Um, And it is because I do hang out a lot with um, regenerative producers. So for me, this is a, an experience of this is literally happening right now. It's um, I'm not waiting. I'm not putting everything else out. Um, And we are seeing just some incredibly dramatic things in landscapes, even in terms of climate, of climate mitigation, of increased rainfall, where people start to change their their practices um, on large scale operations, but how how this is really happening now. And I work with people that very much live in that space. You know, we have that space of hope um, that kind of just fills your heart, and um, and and I just have that now. Like it's just it's a it's a it's a moment by moment experience. I love it. I I love that answer. Hope is mortgaging the future. We need reality. So thank you so much for joining us on the Soil Solutions podcast. And we look forward to being able to work with you in the future. That would be great. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks for your time. Appreciate you joining us today. And for more soil health information from High Plains Journal, please sign up. Hit the subscribe button at the bottom of the page. I look forward to growing together.